Great to be welcomed as a visitor this morning. It was very funny. Thank you. Whoa. Guess we'll get that fixed in a second. It's nice to be back in America. It's nice to be back in New Orleans. It's lovely to visit Europe, actually. You know, Gina and I had a wonderful time visiting Europe, but it's, it's nice to be where you can read the signs. I don't know, there's just something about being able to read traffic signs that are a lot more meaningful to me than reading things I had no idea what I was looking at, trying to drive and know when to get off of an exit that you don't even know what that thing says. But, but we made it back, we're alive. Um, lots of great memories. Hey, let me do this though, while we're trying to figure out how to make a microphone work. Um, I want to ask for a show of hands, but if you're a youth here, if you're a teenager and you're headed to youth camp this week, uh, let, me, let me just give you some advice. It's, it's Sunday. You're scheduled to be at youth camp on Tuesday through Friday. And there's something about encountering God that I think all of us want to be careful to learn. You don't encounter God the same way you encounter people. You don't encounter God's leadership and God's voice the same way you just encounter voices. There's, there's a difference, right? Jesus would stand in front of a crowd and would proclaim things that said, he who has ears, let him hear. So in other words, you can have ears and not hear. And young people, you can have ears and not hear. And you're going to shift gears. And I know that there's, there's just a difference in the way in which we do our lives and the way in which we pay attention to things. And suddenly you're at youth camp and there's these messages and there's ministry opportunities. Because my encouragement to you is don't, don't wait until Tuesday to decide to turn your attention to God like you want to get something from God on Tuesday. Uh, it'll be Thursday by the time you get something from God. Right, so today's Sunday. So here, here's what I advise you to do. Maybe Evan's already done this with, with you guys. Uh, youth camp is going to be an interesting study, primarily focused on Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And you might want to spend some time reading that between now and Tuesday. Just read through it. Read through it, the whole thing today. It'll take you 15 minutes. Read through the whole thing today. Read through the whole thing tomorrow. And just begin to ask the Spirit of God some questions that he may want to address with you when you meet with him. Just begin to prepare yourself to meet with God. And, and quite honestly, that advice fits for this setting, for adults, for everybody. Like there's so much noise in our lives today that if you wait until you get into this moment to get quiet, you're just about ready to hear from God when you start your car to leave on a Sunday morning. So you really ought to begin your interaction with God to receive something from him. Listen, I mean, I don't just say this because I get to speak to you on a Sunday morning and I'd like for you to be able to pay attention while I'm talking to you. I say this because I know this is a unique setting and I know like now more than ever, this is a unique setting because it used to be that our lives had a little bit more room in them. Now they got no room. And so coming into this meeting, are, are, are you prepared to be here this morning? Are you prepared for the Spirit of God to speak the way he speaks, the way he communicates and communes with you that's different than the person at Walmart or the person you drove in the car with today or the way your husband or your wife speaks to you? The Spirit of God speaks a certain way. And are you ready to hear him this morning? 
Right, we're going we're to read several scriptures, and I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you not to just be sitting there watching the service happen. I, I want to encourage you as, as we're reading God's word for you to open God's word, look carefully at it, consider each word that's there, and what's the Holy Spirit want to say to you? Because you know, you're not in the same exact place as everybody else in this room is. What does he want to say to you this morning? And that's how we need to be prepared to come into these kinds of settings when we gather with God's people and we are listening for God's word. So let me just pray for us. I'm going to pray for our youth as well to be prepared to encounter God. And we're going to jump into the message this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to be called, summoned by you into a meeting where your presence is made known to us and your word is made known clear to us and you speak to us. And God, we're here this morning and our young people are going to be gathering this week for a number of meetings. Lord, we need to leave here today and they need to leave those meetings this week being able to say, I met with God. I heard something from God this morning, this week. God, our lives need to be marked by an encounter with you. So Lord, we're, we're not here, this is we're not just gathering in a library to read a book. We are gathering as your people to encounter the living God. So God, open not just your word to us, but open us to your word. God, let us not hide from you. Let's not be distant from you. We need your word, your living word in our lives today and our young people need a living word in their lives this week as they gather with you. God, meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me jump right into this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. As you guys know, we're, we're studying through the message of the Bible through the summer, so we're going to go from cover to cover. We will arrive there at the end in just a couple of weeks. But look at this, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It's in your outline, or you can look at it in your Bible. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. That, that, that's a mouthful. That passage is a mouthful. Right? When maybe, maybe you're new to this whole Christian endeavor. Maybe you've just recently come to faith in Christ. And, or maybe you're picking the Bible up and beginning to get serious about it, maybe for the first time. There, there's, our, our lives need input, don't they? Our lives need some spiritual guidance and some help. So we Sometimes pick the Bible up looking for it to just say something about where I'm at. Tell me something about how to live this next step or this next phase of my life. But this book is about something already. It was about something before you were born. It was about something before you ran out of money at the end of the month last month. It was about something before you got a divorce. It was about something before whatever events in your life got you curious to see, can this book help me? It was already about something. It was about what this passage calls this salvation. This is a book about salvation. 
It's a book about rescuing us from a severe problem in our lives. And it's about grace. Right? The prophets who looked into all that God was revealing, they were looking to understand something about, quote, this grace that would be yours. How many of you guys know we've been saying this, and I think we just need to say it over and over again. This book is not half about how to get to God by the law and half about how to get to God by grace. That's not what this book is about. The prophets, all the way back from Moses through Isaiah, all the way to the New Testament, were all looking for a salvation that could only come to us by grace. They were looking for the same salvation that you and I are looking for today. Are you ever get asked this question by somebody who's kind of curious about the Bible? Well, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? You ever get asked that question? Because it feels like, well, if Jesus hadn't come yet, and the Messiah hadn't come yet, and, and he's the way to the Father, well, then how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Now, I don't know how we get saved, but how did they get saved? They get saved the same way we get saved. Because there's only one way to the Father, and that's been true ever since Adam. And it's through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the only difference between us and them is is this event takes place. Peter preached about this last week. This event takes place. They looked forward to it, right? They were on the hasn't happened yet side of this event. So for them to get right with God and to be with God forever, they looked forward to the day that God would make the way through the Messiah, through the person and the work of Christ to restore them to God. You and I look back on this event, Right, so we've got a little more clarity than they had, right? That makes sense. More has happened. God has revealed more. So we know something more about this. But the prophets were looking for this event because the whole Bible is about this event. It's, it's not an advice book. This isn't just like, you know, old people with gray beards wrote down cool ideas for everybody to, to benefit from for years to come. How to fix a flat. How to do marriage how to raise your children. Right? How many of you guys know that if you turn this into that, you're, you're going to misuse this book? This is a book about God saving us by his grace. And then it says the prophets were looking for these two dimensions here. They were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted two things. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, All right? So there's, there's two things awaiting in the future that the prophets were looking for. The sufferings of Christ, right? So this Messiah was gonna come, he was gonna put things right, he was gonna restore us to God, but for him to do that, he was going to have to suffer. And that suffering was gonna be a, a variety of stuff. He was gonna put on human form. He was gonna be mistreated by man. But the worst suffering he was going to experience was going to be the moment when God poured his judgment out upon his own son. There's no more important suffering that Jesus Christ went through than that. So when you go to define Christianity, when you define it for yourself or when you explain it to others, does your explanation have a suffering Messiah in it? 
Listen, I, I, I know that sounds like, well, that's obvious. But do you know it's not obvious to a lot of people? To a lot of people, Christianity is an advice column. It's how to have a better life. It's an acknowledgement that things don't always go right, but here's how to improve it. Here's how to have a better world. But if your understanding of Christianity doesn't have at the center of it a Messiah who's going to suffer, he's going to be penalized, he's going to make a payment for our sin, to make us right with God, he is going to have to fall under the judgment of God. If your Christianity doesn't have that in it, it's not Christianity. Because this is a book about God's act of salvation by grace, and that's the centerpiece of it. But then once Jesus accomplishes that, because he's going to accomplish that, so much so that he's going to get to the point where he can say, it is finished. Done. I'm done. I did it. And he yields his life, and he's done. He's accomplished this work. But this passage talks about subsequent glories. So there is the suffering of Christ, and then there's subsequent glories. So on the other side of this event, there's, there's some more stuff coming. There's some really cool things that are going to be happening in the lives of God's people that are called subsequent glories. And you and I live on the other side of this event. Right? So, so we live in the chapters of subsequent glories. But how many of you guys have figured out that you don't get to have all those subsequent glories fully right now? And, and if you have encountered that news at some point, you've encountered it by shedding some tears, by being really, really disappointed, by probably questioning God. Right? There's, there's news, right? All this time, these prophets, everybody, you and I reading the Bible, we've read these news reports about these subsequent glories are coming. These things are coming. These promises, it's going to be good. It's a promised land. This is going to be great. And then we get on the other side of the cross, and we, maybe we don't fully experience that. Everything doesn't seem glorious. Does everything seem glorious right now in your life? I'm just curious. Everything, right, is glorious. Well, when you and I bump into that, we, we ask God questions that are really theological questions. They are answered by our study this summer. This is why this is so important. Because when your life doesn't feel right, you're going to think God's not right. But it may be that your life doesn't feel right right now because you're expecting the wrong stuff right now. You're living in a particular chapter in God's plan, right? Everybody before us lived in a particular chapter. You and I live in a particular chapter of God's plan. It's going to have certain stuff in that chapter. There's a couple of more chapters coming. And you and I are in a chapter right now. What's, what's in that chapter? Right, that's what I want us to see today. So our, the author of the book that we're using this summer has, has called this the proclaimed kingdom. Right, that's the chapter he's calling this. Uh, the Bible actually uses a term. I want to explore the Bible's term because he, he's making this up, trying to stick with that P word. And good for him. That works a, a little bit. Um, but what's in the Bible that describes this time period? This time period is called the last days. That's the chapter that you and I live in. We live in the last days. And I titled the message here, Assigned to Live in the Last Days. 
Right? You, could have, you, you could have popped into existence at any moment in the unfolding plan of God. God has chosen for you and for me to exist and to live our lives. We have been assigned to live our lives in the last days. So I, I want to focus on two things. What are the condition in these last days? And what's the mission that we're on in these last days? What are the conditions of this chapter, these last days? And what's the mission that we're on? Right now, now I'm going to put your, your life into a bit of a crosshair here. All right, you're an individual who, young girl, middle-aged man, senior citizen, whoever you are, you've had something that you've wanted to do in your life, right? You, you wanted to live a certain life. You've had certain talents. You've had certain interests. You've had certain dreams, and you've wanted to live those dreams out in your life. When we find people in Scripture, let me pick on a guy that we're probably not real familiar with. I'm, in your outline, I've, I've got several there, but let's just, let's just think about Ezekiel for a second. Ezekiel's a guy who is born and raised and grows up in a particular setting he is fortunate that he is born into the family who would inherit the responsibility to be a priest before God. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this is a unique opportunity. The priest actually gets access to God in a way that everybody else does not. So this is the job of all jobs. If you get to be priest in the nation of Israel, whose life, remember, is centered on the temple... That's the centerpiece of their existence. You get to be the guy who goes before God's presence in some way. And everybody knows that. Right? This guy gets to be the rock star. He is the professional athlete. He is what everybody dreams they'd like to be when they grow up. He gets to be that. So as a young person, he has set his hopes on that. He is looking forward to the day when he gets to serve in the temple, in Jerusalem, before God's presence. And then God's chapter turns. And God's story. Remember, our story is a part of a bigger story. Remember that? So Ezekiel's story is a part of a bigger story. And right about the time that he's going to begin to serve as a priest, God's story suddenly changes and there will be no temple in Jerusalem. God is raising up a nasty guy named Nebuchadnezzar who's going to come show up at the doors of Jerusalem and burn the city to the ground, tear it down and burn the temple to the ground. And instead of everybody being centered on Jerusalem and on the worship of God in this temple, they're all going to be exiled. So Ezekiel's not even going to live in his neighborhood. Not only is he not going to be a priest, he's going to be exiled to another nation where there are no temples and he will perform no duties as a priest and he will live in Babylon and he will be a prophet to the people of God in exile. I just want you to see something for a second. Everybody's story, whatever it was at Ezekiel, just like you and me, he grew up, he wanted to be something. But it was God's story that determined Ezekiel's story, wasn't it? And when you read through Scripture, isn't that true of everybody? Wasn't that true of Noah? I don't know what Noah had planned, but I don't think building a boat for 100 years was part of his deal. 
But it became his deal, wasn't it? Because the chapter of God was to rescue a piece of humanity from judgment. And Noah, that's what I'm doing. And by the way, Noah, that's what you're doing as well. Abraham wants you to leave your family, your wealth, your land, everything you know about the world that, that makes up who you are. And I want you to go to a land that I'm not even going to tell you all about it and where exactly it is. I just want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. Because God was forming a people to live in a promised land and to enter into covenant with him. And God's story became Abraham's story, right? And that's true of Ezekiel. And guess what? It's true of you and me. Everybody here had some kind of dream. And maybe you still do. But is your dream being determined by God's plan? Are you just dreaming your dream no matter what God's doing, no matter what chapter God is in? I'm in my own chapter. I wanted this when I was little. I've always wanted to be this way. People told me I'm good at that. I set my hopes and my dreams on this. Hey, hey, just got a question for you. If you belong to God, what's God up to? Well, I don't even know. Because the God I read about in the Bible just comes alongside whatever it is that I'm interested in and he blesses it. He's good. That's what he does. He just blesses it. The God I read about in the Bible is up to something on every page of human history. Every moment he's up to something. And whatever my story is, it's caught up in his story. It's caught up in the chapter that he's in right now. And you know what chapter God chose Keith Collins to exist in? He chose for me to exist in the last days. He chose for you to exist in the last days. Right Now, here's the conditions in the last days. Because if we're here by assignment, we might want to know something about the days in which we live. And the Bible says a lot about that. So turn to 1 Timothy with me. First Timothy, 2 Timothy, written in the 60s AD, the first century. And if you will, I, I think this is, could be labeled the commentary to the last days. First and Second Timothy, because it's, it's Paul instructing a, a young man who's a pastor and a leader who's going to pass this knowledge on to God's people. And so what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey, Timothy, let me just educate you about the times in which you live, what things are going to be like, so that you'll know how to live and you'll know how to tell my people how to live. So that's what we have here in First Timothy and in Second Timothy. Let me just read a little bit from this and let's see if we can learn about the conditions of these last days that you and I are, are a part of. These last days extend from the ascension of Christ, the finished work of him coming to redeem us back to God, all the way to the second return. When Christ comes back to get us, that's the last days. So I know sometimes we read the last days passages in the Bible and sometimes think, well, are we in the last days? Well, the way the Bible speaks and the way it holds that concept they were understanding that they were in the last days from the moment Jesus went back to heaven. They understood we're in the last days. So here's the chapter of the last days that they lived in, that we live in as well. Here's some descriptions from Paul to Timothy. <clears throat> verse, chapter four, verse one. Now the spirit expressly says, I'm not sure what he normally says, but here he expressly says, right? That in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to 
deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So into this setting, Paul says there's coming a time when people are going to be idea brokers. They're going to be shoveling ideas out to everybody. But they're wayward ideas. They're bad ideas. They're deceitful ideas. And their origins are demonic. Welcome to the latter days. Look in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. And there's a lot in these passages. I just didn't have time to look at them. But here's just a couple of examples where it's blatantly highlighted. These are the conditions that you live in. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Everybody hold on to that word. That's an umbrella word over everything else he's about to say. The times that you and I live in are times of difficulty, right? So before you go running to God and asking for a refund on your Christian experience, because, you know, the, the cashier is going to remind you that, well, you did read the Bible, right? I told you that you were going to be part of difficult times. You are going to experience difficulty. Here's why. Because people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money. And I'm going to come back to the money thing today. So can you hold on to that? Can you notice that it's number two on the list of issues? After you're done loving yourself, you love your money. Just in case you're wondering what your priorities are. (laughs) That's my priority in life. I love me. I love my money. And then we'll get to the next stuff. People will be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Isn't that a strange one in here? That sounds like, you know, there's people in jail for murder, child pornography, you know, this rape, and, uh, you know, this thing over here, just, I don't know, parking tickets. Uh, Does that feel like a parking ticket to you? It does, doesn't it? I mean, I know how I grew up as a teenager. Disobedient to parents. Wow, I made the list? Are you serious? Isn't everybody disobedient to their parents? Listen. There is an issue in here, tucked away, and I won't won't take time to mess with it, but there's an issue in here, tucked away, that when you begin to challenge and cast off authority, you open the door to the things in this list. And the first authority you're going to cast off is what? Your parents. It may seem like a minor thing, but once you get comfortable with authority has spoken, but I'm not going to do it. Once you go there, you have opened the door to so much in your life. Right? And those of us who grew up disobeying our parents realized, yep, that's exactly what happened. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. When you look at the things that are happening around our world, brutal, does that describe the news headlines every other day? It's like you're shooting children at a McDonald's. That's brutal. 
treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I know it's easy to read this list and go, man, those people out there need to get it together. But that one right there really kind of finds its way into the room with us, doesn't it? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How many of us have, have an opportunity to commune with God, to be with God, to meditate, to express our love and our affection, to absorb a deeper reality of who God is in our lives? We, we have the opportunity to do that, but we choose something trivial in its place. Choose to play a video game or watch sports or and that's you know it's not a problem to do those things but you know when your life is characterized by a lack of nearness to God and affection for God all those things are a problem they're all a problem going to work every day is a problem even though you're called to go to work because we are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people right this is the conditions that are available to us in these last days. This is what you and I are experiencing. This is what the people around us are being informed by and affected by. These are the attitudes and the motivations. People get up in the morning motivated by this to live for these purposes in their lives. So let me do this. I just uh, There's a lot we could say. I'm going to highlight two things here. I'm going to highlight the conditions of warfare and conflict in the last days and the heartache conditions of living in the not yet. So let me just highlight those two conditions. The conditions of warfare and conflict. Right? There is an ongoing and even heightened condition of spiritual warfare with demonic forces. Right? I know that that, that sounds hooky-spooky today. That's... You know, people today, they're too scientific to believe in, in ghosts and fairy tales, et cetera, et cetera. But do you know the Bible tells a story that seems to be informed by all the information available? Everything that can be known, God knows, and he records what he will in his word. And how many of you guys have figured out that science cannot figure out everything? It does a decent job in a bunch of categories. But there's a lot it cannot figure out. Revelation chapter 12 tells the story, a bigger story that our story is a part of. Here's the fact of your life. Whether you noticed it or not, this is true. Verse, 12, verse 7 of chapter 12 in Revelation says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, right? We got introduced to him when we studied through the perished kingdom. We don't, we don't meet sin without it being attached to him. The serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts that God had made. That's how we get introduced to sin, through this creature. And so this creature is part of God's world, and he's active. And whether you and I knew it or not, whether we watched the highlights of this battle, apparently 
There was this battle in heaven. There were angels that went to war. Whatever that looks like, I don't even have any idea. I'm just told there's a, there was a war in heaven. And this being that we have come to know as the serpent of old, he was kicked out of heaven to the domain of earth. And he is active here. He's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So there was a collection of angels in heaven that got booted out of heaven and now their domain is the earth and they're what we have come to know as the devil and demons. And they live in this world with us. So your story has them as roommates. Keith, I don't believe in little goblins and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, whatever you believe in, that's up to you, but that doesn't change what's true. There is an unseen world. And you know what? If you just hold still for a second and listen, your heart tells you that. There are unseen elements. Humanity has spent history trying to delve into the unseen world. It's trying to cross over into that realm because we know it's there. We know it's there. And the Bible explains it at some level. Verse 12 says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. You got rid of a bad roommate. <clears throat> You who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, if he knows that, and it's not real clear what Revelation 12 time frame wise is referring to, but wherever it is, if this is called the last days, if wherever this happened, he knew then that his time was limited and short, you better believe he knows now that his time is short. So this creature has urgency about what he's up to. And he's in the world with us. And he's active in the world. So I know Revelation can be that, you know, book of fireworks and weird stuff and all kinds of images. All right, well, what if I pulled you out of Revelation and just sat you down with a letter written by the Apostle Paul to average Joe Christians who live in a town called Ephesus. And he said this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Apostle Paul, somebody that you might say the most brilliant man in the New Testament, believed in the devil. And he believed that he was so active that he had to tell average Christians, not somebody special, just average Christians, that you better suit up because you're going to encounter his schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? This is the condition in which we live. Just a reminder, we're not in heaven yet, are we? There are hostile enemies who still dwell in this land, as they always have, and they're at work, and they're at work in real ways, affecting the world in real ways. They are behind things. They provide doctrines for people to believe certain things. They influence people's lives so that they take certain actions. This is the world that you and I live in. Now, be careful that, that you're not being more educated about your world by the evening news. Because I've yet to hear anybody say that there were demonic forces 
behind the man with the gun in Orlando shooting people up in a nightclub? Did anybody hear a news report anywhere that highlighted that? Why do people do what they do? Well, they're radicals. No demons involved in that, right? Just radical people with radical beliefs. They have mental illness. No demons. There's no demons in any of this stuff. We just explain it. It's all just natural forces. It's just man on man. And you and I begin to live our lives in the last days thinking it's just man on man. It's just man on man. This is not just man on man. It's man on demonic, fallen, hostile world. In a world like that, people need to take notice of it. People need to suit up. All right, how many guys, I mean, you know, been around a few years. You know, if you're over the age of 30, you remember there, there used to not be a terminology called homeland security? Y'all remember that? That's common language now, isn't it? Homeland security, homeland security. Well, because today the conditions of warfare are different, aren't they? This isn't World War I and World War II when you can sit over in America like an island separated by everybody else by these giant oceans and figure out how you're going to do battle with the hostile forces out there because you're so far away from them and you seem to be getting along great with Canada and Mexico. So what's the big deal? Well, all of a sudden, there's this thing called homeland security because the war we fight today ain't nothing like that war, is it? And it ain't like the Cold War. Remember, the Cold War was like these missiles are going to come from Russia over the cap of the earth and going to settle down in all of our cities and blow stuff up. So we'll just protect ourselves from those things way, way, way over there. That's not what Homeland Security is. It? Homeland Security is you never can tell when somebody's going to walk into a movie theater or drive a vehicle all over a crowd and kill people. Soft targets, right? And everybody's taking notice. Everybody's noticing this, aren't they? Okay, I, I don't know. Ephesians 6 sounds like at least Amber Alert, doesn't it? I, can't, I just can't relax and like, hey, I'm just going out into the world and it's cool. Everything's fine. Or, or do I need to heed what's being said here? I need to suit up. There are these invisible forces that are very real and very active and I live in the context of their urgency. They know their time is limited. And they oppose what God is doing. And they're active in people. And they're behind the news items. And they're coming after God's people. They've got any target. That's their target. But what about this in these last times? The continuing struggle and warfare with indwelling sin. Right? There's a conflict with demons. I wish that's all there was. There's a conflict within us. Well, that one's pretty prevalent, isn't it? I mean, you know, you don't live in the chapter where that doesn't exist anymore. But you will. That's great news. You will live in a chapter in God's unfolding plan where there is no more indwelling sin. And you don't have to contend with these urges and impulses and out-of-control feelings and habits Things that rise up in you and things that you feed and get stronger and bigger and you feel like you can never overcome them. There's coming a day when you won't have to do anything about those things. But it is not this day. You don't get to live in that world. And this is a tricky one. Because I read my Bible 
And I find it's, it's, you know, right, we're over here, this big event. It's looking forward to that event, looking forward to that event. And when that day comes, all that he does, he's going to reconcile us to God. He's going to restore us. He's going to heal us. There's healing in the atonement. There's all this stuff that's going to take place right there. So that I feel like if I get on the other side of this thing, it ought to all be true now, right? Yes and no. It is all true. But you don't get to have it all completely right now. Listen, you know, people with a poor theology, and if you've got this theology, you're welcome to come talk to me about it. I had a man do that, and I appreciate that. Somebody came and said, hey, you said this in a message one time. I'm not quite sure I understood what you meant. And he came and talked to me about it. So you do the same when I step on your toes right here. Um, (laughs) By his stripes, we are healed. How many of you guys believe that verse? All right, the rest of you need to either read your Bible or get excited about something. All right, what does it mean the day after Christ died? Ten days after. By his stripes we are healed. A hundred days after. A thousand years. A million years from now. Does it mean that healing automatically is yours because you belong to Christ and you're a Christian? And therefore, because you're a Christian, the Bible says, by his stripes, we are healed. Does that mean I should be healed? So on the other side of the cross, nobody should be sick. If you're a Christian, nobody should be sick. There's a promise. God made a promise that he would bring healing through what Christ did. I know, what if, this is not a contradiction, this is just reading the Bible. What if there's a chapter called the last days And then on the other side of that chapter, there's a chapter called glory. And we stand in this moment and we interpret this passage. By his stripes, I am healed. So his stripes, his taking upon himself the crushing blows of sin in his body purchase for us bodies that will be whole and without illness, fully realized in glory. You do realize in glory, you don't have to fight to maintain your healing and to believe. You're not even walking by faith anymore in glory. You walk by sight. Everything is as it is. You see God and he's fully known. It's a different chapter. But some people have the idea that, well, in this chapter, since Christ went to the cross, he shed his blood, his stripes healed us, we should be healed right now. Yes and no. That act at the cross purchased for you healing forever, that you will fully realize in heaven forever. But in the here and the now, there's no guarantee that you'll be healed. There is this guarantee, you're going to die. It's amazing how everybody's understanding of healing just accepts that one blemish, right? I'm going to be completely healed until the day I die. Um, Well, when you die, your body's going to give out. It's going to be done. So there's an understanding that there's a chapter right now in these last days that's different than the chapter that there is to come. And in this chapter, we we wrestle with things. We contend with things. And one of them is indwelling sin. We still fight. You still get up in the morning. And part of the deal of being a Christian is you have to contend with a powerful inner working that doesn't always want to do what God wants it to do. That's still in all of us. All right, John Piper 
It's his latest book by Mr. Piper I highly recommend. He says, sin is the deepest, strongest, and most pervasive problem of the human race. In fact, once Paul has made clear what the essence or root of sin is in Romans 1 through 3, he goes on to make clear in the following chapters the magnitude of its power. He speaks of sin reigning like a king in death, holding dominion like a lord, enslaving like a slave master to whom we have been sold. as a force that produces other sins, as a power that seizes the law and kills. It's a hostile occupying tenant that dwells in us and as a law that takes us captive. All that deep, strong, pervasive reality of sin in us defines us until we are born again. That miracle must happen. Or this deep antagonism toward God will go on controlling and directing us forever. So we must lay to rest forever the notion that our sin is mainly what we do. It's not. It's mainly who we are until we are a new creature in Christ. All right, now does that make you start thinking, well, good. Finally, then we're done. Well, you will be done one day, but not now. Even then, he says, it is an ever-present indwelling enemy to be put to death every day by the Spirit. The Bible tells Christians who have been born again and given the very nature of God to put to death, mortify the deeds and the passions of the flesh. Not only the activities of the flesh, but the cravings and desires of the flesh. So in this last day chapter, you are still fighting a conflict with sin that dwells in us. Then there's the heartache conditions of living in the not yet. We have all these promises. God has said all these wonderful things that will be ours and that we're anticipating. The promised land, it's, it's milk and honey, it's favorable things, it's, it's peace and it's joy. It's no conflict, right? And then you and I go to live our lives and there's conflict and sadness and grief and moments of peace, and also anxieties that we battle. That's the reality of the space we live in. Those are the last days. And can I just bring you some, not well, good news. You're, you're not out of bounds. You didn't fall out of God's hand. You're, you're, you don't have a defective faith. You're living in the last days. That's what the last days feels like. You're not quite there yet. But you hang on to the promises that you will be. Right, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is that glory? It's the subsequent glory. The sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. There's glories coming that you and I don't fully have. Now we have some of the glories now, but we don't have all of them. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, another subsequent glory. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, subsequent glories. 
You don't, you don't get to experience the redemption of your body fully right now. You do get first fruits. You get a taste of it. Remember, Caleb and Joshua ran into the promised land, scouted out the promised land. The promised land is a picture of this land of promise we're going to. And they came back and they carried with them this luscious fruit. And so even when they weren't in the promised land, they got to taste the luscious fruit. They got the first fruits of that which was coming for them. And listen, that's, this is why we pray for people to be healed. This is why we pray for supernatural interruptions in our lives. Because the God who one day will shut all those things off permanently can shut them off right now too. And he does. So that's why we believe in praying for the sick. Not, not because we believe that every Christian should be healed and, and, and in complete health all the time. But because we believe this passage. That we who have tasted the first fruits, those subsequent glories have invaded this land of last days. And so we get to experience the supernatural intrusion of miracles, of knowing things that we could never know, of seeing things that we could never see in and of ourselves, of experiencing healing in our bodies today that we will fully experience in the future. Now let me move us to our second issue, the mission of the last days, right? There's conditions that you and I live in. There's a mission that you and I are on. We are on a mission. Let me just read you a couple of passages and move through this quickly. Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now this is where the author of our book gets his title, The Proclaimed Kingdom. When Jesus accomplishes his work, now God's people go about their assignment, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness in his name, starting in Jerusalem and spreading to the ends of the earth. And that has come to us, hasn't it? This is why we know the gospel. Matthew 24 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is, the, this is the mission dimension of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And can I just say this? When you encounter Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' invitation to people was never simply, hey, what do you believe? Do you believe this? Good. Check this box right here. Great. What do you believe? Do you believe this? Great. Check this box right here. Jesus' invitation to people was to follow him. Now, obviously, you won't follow him if you don't know who he is and if you don't believe in who he is. And so following assumes believing and knowing. But we have turned Christianity into a box to be checked off. Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, man, I believe in Jesus. So you believe like he died on the cross and was resurrected? Yeah, yeah where's the box? Yeah, I believe that. I'm a Christian. Really? Is that how discipleship sounds in the Bible? 
So in the Bible, people followed Christ. They abandoned things. They left things behind. They cut ties with ways of doing life that they had invented when they didn't know God, which makes sense, right? If you've invented a world that doesn't need God in it, and then you supposedly become a Christian, and you keep living in a world that doesn't need God in it, does that make any sense? If you met the God of the universe and were restored to him, wouldn't your life be reshaped and redefined around who he is and what he's like? How many Christians just claim a relationship with God, but their life stays just like it was before they knew Christ. Same priorities, same time usage, same people in their world, same use of money. It's just like it was before. Listen, I don't want to scare you, but you might not be a Christian. You might have just checked a box about some ideas that you're okay with. There's more to being a Christian than being okay with some of the things the Bible says. This is where you kind of can separate the, I say the men from the boys, but the real Christians from people who just have some ideas that they're okay with. Are you, are you really a disciple? See, a disciple is on a mission. A disciple sits in this room this morning concerned about whether this agenda, the gospel being proclaimed to the ends of the earth, is happening today or not. Is it happening? Is it happening from your own life? Is it happening in this community that we're a part of? Is it happening to the ends of the earth? Because if you don't give any thought to that, well, that you're not concerned about the very things that Jesus Christ is most concerned about. How can you say you're following him if the things that he obsesses about don't enter your mind? It's interesting, and you know, remember 1 and 2 Timothy is a bit of a strategy book from the Apostle Paul to the church on how to live this stuff out, right? So you get interesting passages like, like these right here, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11, here's, here's the lifestyle adjustments for Timothy and for followers of Christ. Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's just listed off some things that are going to lead you into a world that doesn't involve God's purpose. He says, hey, as for you, flee these things. Now, listen, this is not just for Timothy. This is for every Christian who's going to follow Christ. You're going to have to flee something. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There's this call. Second Timothy brings this call in and, and Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, like a good soldier, don't get entangled in civilian affairs. You're here about a war. And you've been enlisted in this war, Timothy. So that, that's, this is a lifestyle adjustment. In the last days, this lifestyle adjustment for all of us involves not being entangled in the affairs of the world so that we can be about a mission that every Christian is called to be on. Now, to do that, you're going to have to adjust your life in real practical ways, which is where Paul goes next with Timothy. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, he says, As for the rich 
in this present age? Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's the great danger of money. It sits in our life waiting for us to set our hope in it. That's the great danger. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, right? For the glories that are subsequent for the day when those glories come. Make sure you use your money in a way that gives away the fact that you're waiting for future glories. Because if you stop waiting for them and it's all about today and what you can get and what you need, you spend all your money on today rather than investing in eternity. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. If you read First and Second Timothy, I encourage you to do that. It's like this, this constant mode of communication. Paul says, hey, Timothy, here's the conditions. Here's what's going on around you. Here's what you do. Oh, and this is going to happen, and here's what you do. And this is what people are going to be like, and this is what they're going to believe. But here's what you do. All right, so it's very much a strategy book about what to do in the last days. And you and I need some help in that. So I want to, I want to finish by giving us a couple of thoughts here. Here's my story in the midst of God's great story. If I'm going to live in these last days, given what we've just read and what we've just been introduced to, first, I'm going to need strategic boundaries in my life. I'm going to need strategic boundaries, right? Given the intense, I think I put this in your outline, given the intense warfare and the spring-like conditions for sin, I need strategic boundaries for my lifestyle and my associations, who I get around, what I expose my life to, the ideas that I begin to buy into the people that I associate with who seek to convince me of what to live for and what's valuable. Given all the warnings and concerns in these letters, I, I, I need boundaries. I need boundaries because there are threatening conditions around me, but I, I need boundaries to be on a mission, right? If I'm on a mission, right, we're about to do this Summer Olympics here, right, are coming up. I'm not sure anybody's going to show up in Brazil. I don't know if you've been reading the news, but uh, the rest of us will watch from a distance. One of the things that always amazes me is the level of dedication of these athletes. You'll hear some of their stories being told. The hours that they spend, you know, at some age, you know, they figured out, you know, this four-year-old girl is a future gymnast. And the next thing you know, that became her life. And at five and six and seven, everything was future Olympics, future Olympics, future Olympics. And how many of you know that for every one of these athletes you're going to observe, boundaries got installed in their lives. They didn't just eat anything they wanted to. They didn't spend their time any way that they wanted to. They probably weren't very good at many other things. They were very good at one thing, and they dedicated themselves to it. And there's a call for us to live toward the mission of God that way. 
And you and I have boundaries. We're just not into everything. We're just not available to everything. We just don't spend our time and money on everything because we live in the last days and we're on a mission and we take it serious. I'm going to need strategic learning in these last days. Over and over and over and over again, Paul warns Timothy about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and people who sneak in among you and they bring in ideas, bad ideas and bad doctrine and they lead people astray. And some of it is is stuff that we'd say, oh yeah, I recognize that when it came in the door. And some of it looks like, hey, that preaches, man. That's all right. That preaches. That, that that, That sounded like you're preaching, man. Yeah. And yet, Paul calls Timothy to be discerning. There are some people who are going to misuse the law in such a way that they're going to be out of the will of God, but they're going to sound like they're giving you sound Christian advice. So I'm going to need some strategic learning in these last times. But number two on our list of, of sins, right, after lovers of self was what? Do you all remember? Lovers of money. Apparently money's an issue. Did y'all know money was an issue? You mind if I make your money an issue for a few moments? I don't make your money an issue, but the apostle Paul does. He highlights it more than once to Timothy. Chapter 5 and also in chapter 6. He's concerned about money. John Piper's latest book, he talks, he has a whole chapter devoted to money. He says this, money itself is dangerous. Not evil, just dangerous because of how quickly and easily we can be deceived by it. Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Money is dangerous because it has such a power to deceive. It's a good liar. Handling money is like handling a live wire that can electrocute you. That's the gist of Paul's words to Timothy, right? In chapter five, he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. All right, stop right there. Is there anybody here who doesn't desire to be rich? Did anybody get up this past week and go, God, whatever you're doing in my life, just just keep me from being rich? (laughs) Is there anybody who prayed that prayer this week? Every one of us is strategically living our lives trying to figure out, how do I improve my richness? How do I move toward richness? Yet the Bible says, hello, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's very strong language. Temptation snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, pierce themselves with many pangs? Surely Paul means for us to be struck with a profound caution. How many of us are living in the last days with a sense of money is right there, caution before you reach for it. Caution before you welcome it into your life. Listen, I know it's easy to stand in a pulpit and pound on all kinds of behaviors. 
you know, sex and drugs and, and rock and roll and whatever it is that you're not supposed to be into. And those are the really bad things. Those are really bad. How many of you guys know you can sit in a covenant group meeting and if you find out that somebody in the group was like drunk the other night and rammed their car into a telephone pole, it's like, oh, scandalous. <laughs> oh, did you hear? And right next to you is some of the most greedy individuals who are clutching for money every day of their life. You freaked out by them? Well, no, I'm one of them. <laughs> Why would I be freaked out by them? That's what I'm doing too. Can I just tell you, a lot of those sins that we get freaked out about, they have a different kind of power in our lives. Right? They have the power of pleasure, and many of them have the power of distraction. Right? You'll get to the bottom of your sin sometimes if you just add that one to your category. Right? You know, there, there's an element where people smoke, people get involved in sexual deviancy, uh, somewhat for pleasure, but also for distraction. People overeat. People drink quite often because they just want to be distracted from this monotonous, boring, I can't figure it out life. I just need to get my mind off the stuff that doesn't work. So I, I walk to the refrigerator. One guy grabs a bottle. The other guy grabs a piece of pie. <laughs> now the guy who grabbed the bottle, oh, oh, you need to get in there and get some counseling. What about the guy who grabbed the pie? They grabbed it for the same reason. They just wanted to be distracted from a life that doesn't work and it's not rewarding and there's no joy in it and God isn't very big in it. But here's the danger of money. Money's a little different. Money masquerades as your savior. Those other things aren't claiming to save you. Nobody runs towards a bottle and says, save me. They just say, distract me, numb me. But you run towards money like your savior. See, my money can provide things for me. My money can rescue me from the fears that I'm feeling about retirement years and the future and whether I'm going to have enough. My money can provide excitement for me. It can take me places. It can, it can get rid of this boredom and take me to another place in the world. My money can provide a promising future. I can invest it this way and it can become something. I can own something. It can, it can provide something for me. See, my money's got power to save me. That's why the warning to those with money in Timothy is that they not transfer their hope to it. That's the great danger of money. How many of you guys know what I just described is more of a problem for most of us in this room than sex and drugs and rock and roll? In the last days, your lifestyle needs to be careful in what you do with money and how it sits in your life. You can read John Piper's last quote there on your own. Let me finish by asking us to, to pray together in just a moment. Eric, you can go ahead and come, buddy. Listen, the, the Bible informs. Now, Keith, what did you want to do with these passages? Uh, I say, first off, I just, I just want them to bring us some insight. I just want them to educate us as to the chapter in which we live in is called the last days. It has certain conditions in it. Certain things are going to touch our lives. Many, many of them are going to sit under the title of difficulty 
in the last days, you will encounter difficulty. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't hire an attorney and take God to court. Don't ask for a refund. Don't question whether Christianity is real. The Bible said that you would encounter that. The plan of God is unfolding. These last days are not easy days. They're days of warfare and conflict. So here's what I want you to do. Just bow with me just for a moment and pray. I want you to just ponder and consider whether you are ready to live in these last days. I want you to consider the condition of your own soul and how you're pursuing some things and consider whether or not you're ready to live in the chapter God has assigned you to live in. Question, am I vulnerable in these last days because I lack boundaries? Let the Spirit of God speak to you. Where have you put up some boundaries in your life? Where have you labeled that relationship, that setting, that practice, for me, would be unwise. Be unwise. I'm going to label that unwise for me. Given these last days, given the hostility of demonic forces, given the presence of indwelling sin, given the struggles that I've had, Listen, right now as I'm describing those feelings, if you can't find any boundaries in your life, then you are vulnerable in these last days. All these warnings are there for a reason. Do you need to let the Holy Spirit find places this morning for you to reconsider, reevaluate, step back from. Is he showing you anything right now? Is he speaking to you? Are you vulnerable in these last days because you lack learning truth and the Bible and sound doctrine? There are deceptive ideas out there. There are doctrines And there are practices, there are ways of doing life that are going to be sold to you in the days ahead. Do you you have the Word of God in you, active, noisy, coming up against these other ideas that seek to capture you? Because if you don't, you are vulnerable in these last days. You find yourself perhaps vulnerable in these last days because you're not on a mission with God. You're doing life, trying to avoid trouble, come to church, hang out with mostly Christians. But are you on a mission for God? 
Are you obsessed with the thought that when Jesus finished his earthly assignment, he broke into the next chapter in the last days of taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? Are you obsessed with that? Are you concerned about whether the gospel is being transferred, whether repentance and forgiveness of sins is being made known in this world? Do you partner with that? Do you serve in that capacity? Have you found places where you could give your life for that cause? Do you pray about that? Do you take your precious time and energy and thoughts and mix faith into your heart and come before God's throne and call upon him to save and open the eyes of the blind and bring men and women into the kingdom. Are you vulnerable in these last days because you don't have a plan for money? You don't have a plan for it. You're not intentional about it. Jesus warned over and over again about money. Apostle Paul warned about money and its power. And he called on people to have a plan. Have a plan for money. Don't just go after money. Why do you want money? What are you going to do with it when you get it? What are your priorities for it? Is it it just so you can further your own pleasures? Is it to put a band-aid over your fears so you can stop feeling so freaked out about the future and insecure? Are you transferring your hope from God? to money. You've not noticed you've been doing that. God wants to warn you this morning. Be careful before you crave or reach for money. That you don't begin to ignore me and stop trusting me. I am your Savior. I'm the one who provides everything that's good in your life. God can do it with or without money. What are you reaching for? God, we need your voice this morning. God, help us experience all that you've provided for us in these last days. God, we are not here by accident. We could have lived in a different time. We could have followed Moses through the desert on his way to a a revelation of the tabernacle and the law. We could have lived in a promised land, a little piece of geography in the Middle East, the covenant you made with Abraham. God, that's not the days you chose for us. You have chosen the last days. You have chosen for me to live in these days. And for these days to define my life and what I'm about. And so, God, this morning we look to you. Lift our eyes. Guard us and protect us. Give us an eagerness to fulfill the mission you've given to us in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.